Welcome to Cato Audio for August 2019. I'm Caleb Brown. In this month's offering, Robbie Suave discusses young radicals in the age of Trump. Heidi Linton describes providing humanitarian aid in North Korea. George Selgin details the complexity of fast, reliable payments. And Jason Brennan considers when it's ethical or important to resist state authority. First up, this month's Cato Roundtable. At the Cato Institute's recent Sphere Summit on teaching civic education, representatives Justin Amash and Zoe Lofgren sat down to talk to the assembled group of teachers about how Congress works and, as importantly, how it doesn't on behalf of constituents. The conversation on Capitol Hill was moderated by Cato's Jeff Vanderslice. Um, I'd like to start by asking each of you um, to really uh, take a moment to discuss what you consider to be the cause of uh, political polarization and the apparent um, uh, dysfunction in Congress that we see currently. Um, Is it driven by leadership? Is it um, simply a a matter of of members of Congress echoing the sentiments that are uh, expressed by their constituents back home? Is it something else? Um, uh, Ms. Lofgren, if, if, if you would... Well, I I think there's more than one factor, but uh, to a large extent, members of Congress tend to reflect their constituents uh, because they do have a hiring decision every other year. Uh, They do try and keep in touch with what people want them to do. And the country itself is, I think, more polarized than we've been in quite a long time. Uh, And that is reflected here in the Congress. Add into that that the way to get uh, media attention is to be extravagant in your rhetoric and to be combative. Uh, you know, that fuels some of the overblown uh, rhetoric uh, that we sometimes uh, see here. And it's rewarded not only by media attention, but oftentimes by uh, public acclaim. Uh, I will mention the name because it was an unfortunate event, but someone said on the floor something very negative during a State of the Union uh, address a few years ago and got a million dollars in online contributions as a reward. So there's that element uh, to it as well. It's hard to um, change everything, but one of the things I think is that if you model good behavior, maybe that helps move things in a different direction. And that's just some of the things I I think are afoot. I'd say I largely agree with Zoe. Um, it's hard to say how we got to this point. It's, it's been a very gradual evolution. I do think that the discourse is worse now than it's been during my time in Congress. I mean, I've been here, um, this is my ninth year now, and it's gradually gotten worse. Um, I, I would say that a lot of it has to do with the concentration of power in leadership, that over time, both parties have concentrated power in a few people. And uh, when you have just one or two leaders who can raise as much money as the rest of the uh, caucus combined, um, that those people have a lot of influence. And they can get people into, into line. And um, you know, committee chairmanships, committee assignments, um, uh, contributions, those are all handed out on the basis of whether you stick with your party. Um, or whether you're willing to take a particular vote in a particular instance. So uh, I think 
that creates a circumstance where the only way for people to differentiate themselves is to go really negative. Um, most of the votes are party line, most of the big votes. So when people go on the campaign trail, they differentiate themselves by going really negative on personal stuff because that's, that's all they really have. We don't have that many opportunities to vote on a variety of amendments that are not vetted by leadership. So amendments that truly come from the body. And, uh, and that means we don't get to differentiate ourselves as much as we'd like to through policy. And if we zoom out and look at this from a 30,000 foot level, is this, is this concerning to you? Is it, is it you know, beyond just you know, the work that you're able to get done here in Congress, is it concerning to you on a more foundational level? And similarly, should the rest of us be fundamentally concerned that this is happening in Congress? Well, if, if I may, I think the two parties are organized slightly differently in, in the Congress. Um, on the Democratic side, generally the committee assignments are done by a seniority um, in the chairmanship. I mean, we have a vote, but it's almost never varies from seniority. That's very different on the Republican side. That was changed when Newt Gingrich became a speaker in uh, 1995, my first uh, day in, in Congress. Um, I do think, you know, there's a back and forth between empowering the rank and file and somebody pulling it together so you can move off in one direction. And prior to uh, the 94 election, the committee chairman had gotten to such a point where they were like fiefdoms and there was no way to actually have cohesion uh, on the majority party because nobody was in charge. And I think Gingrich completely upended that system and took it too far in the other direction so that too much of the authority is vested uh, in, was vested in the speaker as opposed to the committees. I think we're in moving in the other direction now, which is a healthy thing, um, but it's hard to get it is hurting cats uh, to get everybody moving in in the same direction in a policy point of view. I was asked coming out of a, a caucus meeting the other day on whether or not people agreed with a resolution condemning the president's tweets or whether they there was a division on censor. And I said, look, you know, we've got. Uh, all these Democrats, and each one of them would like it to be exactly the way they want it, right? They'd like to write it their way, but you can't have that. I mean, you gotta have some kind of cohesion and understand that to get anything done, you don't get 100% of the way you want it. And certainly, um, Justin and I don't agree on everything, but we've managed to work together successfully on a lot of things because you know we're focused on trying to accomplish something. I think it remains to be seen whether we're moving in the, in the right direction um, in this Congress. Uh, we haven't. Let me yeah. make it clear: just power, location, leadership versus. Teams. Yeah, I'm not saying. I'd like to see other things are going, right. going great. No, no, I, I understand that. Um, and you know, as an independent, I'm not trying to make a partisan point either. No. Um, but uh, I think it remains to be seen whether the uh, the place is becoming more deliberative. The the body is supposed to be deliberative. That's how the framers of the Constitution intended it, that we'd go and discover the outcomes. And instead, the outcomes are dictated to us by a few people. 
And I think so many of my colleagues, especially on the right, because I've dealt with them the most over the years, are missing the forest for the trees. So they're, they're constantly worried about the substantive issues of the day, you know, how they can push conservative legislation through, but they're constantly undermining the institution itself. And if you undermine the institution, it doesn't matter whether you're on the right or the left, we're going to have a bad outcome for our country. And I think the reason our country has been so successful so, for so many years, why we have uh, very much a classical liberal tradition that has thrived is because we have strong institutions, our constitution, the rules of the house, we have a structure in our constitutional republic that allows very uh, liberty-oriented outcomes to rise to the surface. And as you concentrate more power in a few people, you really break down the system. Separation of powers, for example, uh, is really broken down in a system that where the uh, party leadership control and dominate. Because when you think about it, when you have only a few people who control everything, the president doesn't have to negotiate with that many people. He only has to negotiate with the Speaker of the House and the Senate Majority Leader because they can get their people in line. If instead the president had to negotiate with the entirety of Congress where the outcomes are discovered and you hand something to the president, you say, here's, here's the bill that passed both houses. Now, are you gonna sign it? He can't just say to the Speaker or the Senate Majority Leader, hey, could you make this change or that change? They would say to him, well, I have to take it back to the whole body and we're gonna to have to go through the whole process again and people might be able to offer different ideas. That really, um, that system, the system the framers intended, really disempowers the executive and puts lawmaking back in the hands of Congress. And that's the way it's supposed to work. So I, I think, yeah, we do have a bigger problem and the worst part of it is people at home don't see it. We're, we're so focused on the substantive issues. When you watch Fox News or CNN or, or MSNBC, nobody is talking about the process of government. They're all talking about uh, the substantive issues of the day and often it's just the messages you wanna to send to the other side. I, I think to some extent, the point you've made on, on the news is an important one because the news cycle is so swift now, not just with cable TV, with all social media, that you know things that happened Monday, it seems like it was forever ago. And so the, the body itself is trying to react to the news cycle, and it really doesn't leave time for the kind of deliberation that used to be really part of how the House of Representatives operated. I would just disagree slightly with Justin in terms of how you move forward, because if the leadership I mean, I think about, you know, what I, I don't purport to know how the Republican uh, conference really works because I don't go into their meetings, but I go on our side of the aisle and there's different people thinking different things and they're not exactly what you might think. I mean, there's, uh, you know, this point of view on this uh, issue and the leadership needs to figure out how do you get to consensus to move forward? See, the leadership would never agree to something that people didn't support, uh, because on our side at least, people will vote the other way if it's not really something that they can, can support. So I think that's really a matter of whether you're, you're talented in understanding where your group is and what is a, is a common point where you can move forward. I would just rebut by saying the consensus is supposed to be discovered through the process. 
That's why we have our system of government the way it is. You're supposed to go to the House floor, offer amendments, offer your ideas, have real debate, which we barely have. I mean, if you watch Congress, there is rarely real debate that goes on in Congress. So we're supposed to discover the consensus through the process. Instead, uh, we shortchange the process. We try to find the consensus ahead of time and then try to twist arms to get people to fall in line. I think that's a mistake. It creates more partisanship. It, make, it creates more angst for members of Congress. And I think it gets people at home uh, to miss the big picture of, of what our system is all about. I think there's truth to what you're saying. And I think back to the amendment we had a few days ago. I didn't offer it, but it was had to do with whether you would prohibit sending the military to enforce immigration law. That's posse comitatus. That's existing law. You can't do that. And a majority of the House voted, essentially, to repeal that bedrock of American law without any debate or, I think, yep. thorough understanding of what the vote meant and why. I mean, there was very limited debate, but also no one's there. So it used to be before C-SPAN existed, with all due respect to C-SPAN, members would go to the floor and listen to the debate. That was the only way to find out what was going on. That no longer happens. Yeah, and we have, um, we have two-minute votes, and things move very quickly. But again, I think this can be largely corrected uh, by having leaders who take charge and do the right thing. So the Speaker of the House, whether it's a Republican or a Democrat or someone else, um, and I've, I've been very critical of Republican speakers of the House, to be clear. Um, I have a long history of criticizing Republican speakers of the House. Um, but whether it's the Republican speaker or the Democratic speaker, they, that person can take control of things. And I don't mean take control of things by running it top down, but by opening up the process, by offering more time, by uh, creating an environment that encourages people to go to the House floor and debate. The speaker has the opportunity to do that, and the speaker is the one person who can really change the culture of Congress. Congressman, a minute ago you uh, mentioned a word that stood out to me because I have a quote here that I wanted to read. You, you mentioned the word legitimacy, right? And it's something that I worry about as you know the, the uh, discourse kind of um, you know in Congress um, you know goes on a downward spiral. Um, it's a quote. Uh, that I came across in 2016 when uh, Justice uh, Clarence Thomas was giving some remarks before a, just, uh, a Washington, D.C. audience. He said, this city is broken in some ways. I think we have decided that rather than confront the disagreements and the differences of opinion, we'll just simply annihilate the other person who disagrees with me. I don't think that's going to work in a republic or in a civil society. At some point, we have to recognize that we're destroying our institutions and we're undermining our institutions. And the day is going to come, if it's not already here, that we're going to need the institutions and the integrity of those institutions. So even when you disagree with, the, with people, it's important to leave them standing and to leave the institutions standing. And he goes on to say, but I don't think that's going to change in this city until we get back to the notion that we argue, that we debate, that we decide things based on logic and facts and reason, as opposed to who yells the loudest or who has the best narrative or the best meme or some other nonsense. Um, any, any reactions uh, to that? Well, that's, that's right. I mean, that's, um, that's really the, the problem with Washington today is that 
uh, people are trying to crush the other side. They think it's an all-out war and one side wins and the other side loses. And that's how a lot of members of Congress think about it. And uh, unfortunately, more and more people at home are thinking that way as well. All you have to do is go on social media and, and see what a lot of people say. And um, one of the things that's really been lost in Congress is the art of persuasion. Nobody attempts to persuade people. Uh, when I go back home to my district and I hold a town hall, my goal is to persuade people. At least part, part of my goal, besides learning from the people I represent, is to persuade them of uh, why I voted a certain way and how my principles are the same as their principles. And I've applied them in a, in a way to this subject. And uh, I want them to see how, how I applied those principles. So persuading people at home, persuading your colleagues is really a lost art. It doesn't happen and uh, it, it's related to the breakdown in debate. We don't really have debate anymore on the House floor. And a lot of things are just handed to us now by leaders. I, you know, I think oftentimes there is, it's, it is hurried. Um, we've tried to persuade people right. on, on the various efforts we've done on surveillance, actually, and 702 and other, other issues. Um, and sometimes we succeeded and sometimes we didn't. Um, but there's another issue, which is a common agreement on facts, which is missing in some cases. And if you can't agree on what the facts are that are ascertainable, it's very difficult to move forward. I, in addition to the Judiciary Committee, and I serve on the uh, House Science Committee, and we're in a much better position this year on the Science Committee than we were last year because of uh, really uh, much improved leadership on the Republican side of the aisle. And we are back to actually having scientists come and testify about science that they have reviewed. And it's a wonderful thing. Um, we had a fabulous hearing uh, from glaciologists and the, the glaciers are collapsing worldwide. And I couldn't figure out which witness was a Republican witness and which witness was the Democratic witness. And that's a good thing. You just want the scientists there. So that's a little bit of good news in an area that's not always a happy, happy news site. There is, there is this disagreement on facts. And uh, I would, again, uh, go back to leaders and, and point to the fact that a lot of times, uh, the leadership teams, the uh, committee chairmen are handing information to their members that is not factual. Uh, I've had many times where I've gone to conference and pointed something out, and I can even hold up a piece of legislation and read the line in the legislation, and the, the leadership team will act like I didn't say anything, like they didn't understand what I was saying and it didn't mean anything to them, even though it's in the legislation. And then... Uh, Frequently, when Zoe and I are trying to persuade people, we'll run into the problem of uh, false information that they've been given by someone else. And it's, it's designed to create just enough doubt in the person's mind so that they won't go with you on the particular issue. We might want to persuade them uh, to protect Americans' privacy, for example, or uh, to protect the, the rights of American citizens when they're detained. Um, but the leadership team or someone in Congress who's on the other side will embed some false information uh, into the discussion just so that there's a little bit of that buzz going out there that um, what Zoe and Justin are saying is not true 
Um, actually, they're trying to help, you know, terrorists or they're, you know, it's something like that quite often. Joe Lofgren and Justin Amash are representatives in the U.S. House. Jeff Vanderslice directs government affairs at the Cato Institute. They spoke at Cato's Sphere Summit held in July. Learn more about Cato's programs for students and teachers at our website, cato.org. The loud and occasionally violent protests on many college campuses have shut down controversial speakers and created a chill on many campuses. So what do these widely varied young people want? Robbie Suave tries to find out in his new book, Panic Attack, Young Radicals in the Age of Trump. He spoke at the Cato Institute in June. Thank you all for being here. So the subject of my book, Panic Attack, Young Radicals in the Age of Trump, is uh, the culture of activism um, at the moment we kind of occupy right now, particularly on college campuses, where uh, a number of progressive activists, um, particularly, particularly at elite educate, educational institutions, um, have been engaged in, in attempts to shut down um, visiting speakers who they may disagree with, uh, professors who may actually be very well to the left, who, who they object to something they've said in classroom and they call for investigations of them, um, grew other student groups whose activities they don't uh, agree with. Um, this is a problem uh, more uh, pervasive, I think, um, at again, at, at places like Harvard and Yale and liberal arts institutions. Uh, where the culture of a of not all students, not not most students, but a, a small number of, of very progressive kind of radical fringe uh, believes that ideas that they that they disagree with are not only uh, sort of objectionable in like a tactical political sort of uh, scheme, but uh, represent a threat to their emotional well-being and their health, and thus should be these ideas should be unsayable on college campuses. Uh, this is a problem I think uh, the sort of national media started paying more attention to beginning in late uh, 2015 when there was a very notable event at, uh, at Yale, a dean of that college, Nicholas Christakis. Um, I believe Greg was actually there for that event in a sort of twist of fate that you would not believe the writing of this season. They didn't believe uh, it. <laughs> Uh, the, uh, the Dean Nicholas Christakis, his, his wife uh, had, had written an email uh, to the students saying that uh, rejecting kind of previous guidance the administration had given the students, uh, warning them not to wear offensive Halloween costumes. And Christakis' wife had said, you're probably all adults. You can maybe decide for yourselves what's appropriate to wear for Halloween. And a, a number of students uh, rejected this, uh, this attempt to be not paternalistic and surrounded Christakis in the public square and berated him for a long time, uh, uh, asserting that it was his role on campus to provide uh, a safe space for them from, from discomfort, from emotional harm and that he had failed in his obligation to do that. And they said explicitly that that is the role of the administration is to provide us this, this overbroad safety from, from ideas and things that might trouble us. Um, this, is a, this is a kind of undercurrent of activism that has cropped up time and time again in, in the years uh, since this incident. Um, probably many of you are aware of, of some of the incidents that have attracted more uh, national attention. Uh, attempts at uh, Middlebury College to stop 
uh, a planned debate between the conservative uh, thinker Charles Murray and a, a liberal economist, Alison Stanger. Um, the activists actually attacked, not only prevented the event from taking place, but ended up putting uh, Ms. Stanger in a neck brace. Um, ev uh, events at uh, Berkeley, uh, attempts by conservative students to bring provocative far-right speakers resulted in smashed windows, uh, trees being set on fire, um, uh, the events not taking place. Uh, this is not just happening, does not happen just to far-right uh, kind of uh, people, but, uh, but also to leftist professors, people like Brett Weinstein and Laura Kipnis, uh, are two notable examples of, of, of very progressive academics whose, own, whose, whose students objected to, to, to something they thought or something they did, and in Kipnis's case, uh, launched uh, uh, harassment complaints that had her investigated. Um, th this continues to, uh, to today, just, just in, the, in the news in the last uh, few weeks. A law professor at uh, at Harvard University, Ron Sullivan, who is uh, well known for his for his expertise on criminal justice reform. He was, I believe, an advisor at one point to uh, Senator Obama. Uh, he has represented uh, and helped to to free wrongfully incarcerated uh, tons of wrongfully incarcerated people. And he has uh, represented, as, as you do if you're a if you're a defense attorney, he's represented all sorts of very controversial clients, accused murderers, accused terrorists, even. But he is now, uh, he was briefly uh, in this sort of last semester going to represent Harvey Weinstein, uh, the, uh, who has been Me Too'd, who is credibly accused of, of uh, sexual harassment and assault. So uh, the activist students, about 50 of them, had protests and they said that, that Sullivan uh, representing Weinstein made the campus unsafe for women, uh, that they, this, this, would be, this should be impermissible. Uh, Harvard investigated Sullivan and decided to uh, fire him as uh, not as a law professor, but as faculty dean of uh, one of the residential colleges. And he actually had a great op-ed in the New York Times just yesterday um, saying that uh, he is very concerned about the emotions of students at many elite institutions being taken so seriously that they are now dictating uh, the policies and overriding uh, values that the left Used to uh, used to believe very strongly in values of free expression and due process. So that was those two uh, are areas where libertarians and progressives have historically been in close uh, proximity. Uh, they're, they're, I have tremendous respect for the work, for instance, the ACLU has done over the years uh, to defend the rights of despicable people uh, to defend their free speech and their due process rights. Uh, but even the ACLU now is sort of out of step with where activist culture is. At William & Mary, just I believe two years ago, uh, a member of the ACLU attempted to speak to students and a group of activist students associated with the local Black Lives Matter group um, shut this woman's speech down. They, they, they talked over her to prevent it from happening. Uh, eventually the organizer of the event simply gave the mic to the leader of the student activists to let them have their own, uh, have their event uh, instead. And they, and they, they shouted that the ACLU is, is, is a white supremacist organization, that liberalism itself is white supremacy for, uh, for, for believing, I guess, that even bad people like white supremacists should have, should have rights. Um, again, this is so different uh, I, from where the left was um, decades ago. Berkeley was the birthplace of the free speech movement. In, in research for my book, I actually learned that in 1963, the, uh, the left, the far left, very progressive student group invited a Nazi to campus to make a free speech point. Um, and they dressed in full Nazi regalia to promote the event. And then this, this man, this, this 
guy spoke and no one heckled him, no one shut him down. They just laughed at him. They laughed at him when he was done. And, uh, and, and this was, this, again, this was something that the, the progressive students did to say that, no, we are for ironclad free speech. Um, can you imagine uh, if this happened today, campuses would be shut down, there would be national days of mourning, uh, there, there would be talk of how the mental health uh, of the entire campus was negatively impacted by this to the point where no one can go to classes and no one can take their exams. Um, so, so this is the kind of, that's a survey of kind of the, uh, the, the problems um, I'm, I describe in my book and, and then I, I talk about different activist groups um, that have been active over the last 10 years and specifically what some of their goals are. Um, but I, to keep it uh, without getting too, I think, hyper-specific on that, um, I'll just very briefly talk about uh, kind of the trends, I think, linking these groups and maybe uh, contributing to them choosing these tactics. So when I, uh, when I spoke to some of these activists for the book, um, specifically at uh, University of Michigan, uh, where Jane is also a University of Michigan grad, so we're, we're a heavy Michigan uh, a bunch here. Um, and they were, uh, they, uh, this was another event where Charles Murray was supposed to speak, and they were planning to uh, prevent him from speaking. And, uh, you know, I, I, I would say things to the activists like, well, don't you think this makes uh, Charles Murray look more sympathetic, and you look very sensitive or, or very foolish for, for, for thinking that he can't even be allowed to speak? Um, but what they told me then and what they, they told me over and over again in the research I did for this book was that, well, if you let someone speak who makes people feel, who people disagree with uh, on campus, who are, mar are the marginalized on campus uh, feel uncomfortable, then you've essentially allowed violence to take place. So we are committed to not having these uncomfortable conversations with people who are, who, uh, or, or allowing people who are non-leftists to speak on campus uh, because the result of that will be uh, trauma for people, uh, mental trauma, and, and that exists on sort of the same spectrum as physical violence, which obviously the campus is obligated to prevent. Thus, uh, our tactics are justified, not only justified, but necessary to protect people's lives and their health. Um, I, I think that's a, that's a new uh, uh, sort of trend in, uh, in activist culture that uh, poses a, a complication uh, for those of us who believe campuses should remain places where difficult conversations can and must take place, uh, places where uh, a range of ideological uh, viewpoints should be aired and discussed, uh, places where professors should have wide latitude to tackle uh, difficult subjects um, in their classroom without fear of their students um, uh, uh, complaining to administrators and having them investigated uh, for saying something they disagree with. North Korea poses not just a threat to its neighbors, it poses an ongoing humanitarian crisis. At the Cato Institute's June event, Peering Behind the DMZ, Heidi Linton with Christian Friends of Korea describes some of the challenges in providing basic services to those in need in the DPRK. When we were in clinic last week, I was blown away by a doctor that came 65 kilometers on terribly difficult roads with a picture on his cell phone saying, my patient is, was here last week for blood draw, but he's too sick to come this week. He had a hemorrhage last week and it's not safe for him to travel. 
I came here to get his blood results, and I came begging that you could start him on treatment. Would you release his medicine to us, so I, so, to me, so I can take it back to him? He was positive for Hep B. He was not positive for C. All of his other markers indicated treatment, so we released the medicine to his doctor for him to take it the 65 kilometers back on a dusty, long road to where his patient was. We see this kind of thing over and over again in North Korea. There are many, many people there who live incredibly difficult lives. They care about their patients. They care about their families. They're desperate for, for, for an answer to their medical issues, to their malnutrition issues. And we have, we have the possibility of stepping into this and reaching them and showing them love and mercy and showing them that the American people, that the people of the world, that Christians have not forgotten them and will be compassionate towards them. That is why we go to North Korea. It's very difficult. It's incredibly challenging. The sanctions have, uh, have given us a workload probably 10 times what it was pre-2017 on the administrative side. And yet, it is all worth it because we're able to reach ordinary, very ordinary, very sick people who have no other hope. And we have an opportunity to do that, and so we must. So thank you for coming today. Thank you for wanting to understand more of what North Korea is all about. It is a complex place. And uh, I'm just grateful that you're here. Thank you. Moving money across the globe quickly, reliably, and securely is an important way to help economies develop. At the Cato Institute's June Conference on Financial Inclusion, Cato's George Selgin discussed how best to bring faster payments to people. Now, today's high-tech payments medium is not banknotes, of course, but private digital dollars transferred using plastic cards, mobile phone apps, computer keystrokes. So unlike paper notes, no contact is needed between payers and payees, and that's a nice improvement. Apart from old-fashioned wire transfers, uh, private providers today offer all sorts of fast, relatively fast digital payment options. Besides debit and credit cards, you have PayPal and Google Pay and Apple Pay, Venmo, Zelle and Square, and some others, each of which has its unique virtues and is good for, especially good for particular kinds of payments. And they're not just fast, relatively. They're fast and they're cheap and they're often more reliable than legacy payment systems. PayPal for online shopping, Venmo for sending money to your friends, Apple Pay if you use an iPhone, Google Pay if you've got an Android phone and a Gmail account, Square if you don't want to have uh, a separate account as well as your bank account and so on. But these payments, fast payments providers, don't generally offer fast back-end services. On most of these systems, it takes two or three days for accounts to settle. And therefore, the risks of older-style payments are still present, albeit not as great. Zelle is the one exception. It's run by a consortium of banks. And in, in that system, funds are instantly available to the payees. But even on Zelle, final settlement 
takes a day or sometimes more if you've got weekends or holidays to deal with. So banks, in that case, are exposed to some risk. My second tale is that of a new back-end fast payment system, the RTP for real-time payment system, developed with the Fed's active encouragement by another consortium of private banks called the Clearinghouse, or TCH for short. Now, it just so happens that TCH began life as this nation's second-ever clearinghouse after the Suffolk system in New York in 1853. The specific challenge that the RTP system is designed to solve is that of achieving a ubiquitous or nationwide fast settlement system that bank and non-bank providers of front-end fast payment services can take part in. RTP's basic workings are very similar, in fact, uncannily similar to the workings of the old Suffolk system. Any bank can participate, and non-bank service providers, assuming they don't have a special uh, purpose national bank charter, can appoint a participating bank to serve as their agent. Participants have to pre-fund balances held in a jointly owned RTP account of the Federal Reserve Bank of New York with prefunding requirements based not on their size, as in the Suffolk system, but on their anticipated activity. As the balances are used, the banks have to top them up again, this, in this case by transferring funds from their ordinary Fed master accounts to the RTP joint account. Settlement of payment orders between RTP participants that is, the customers of those participants, takes place instantly, and it does so 24-7, through debits and credits to and from individual balances in the joint account. The system also allows payment orders to be accompanied by messages and information concerning, for example, what the payment was for, payment confirmations, and that makes it especially attractive to businesses that can save a lot of money on resource management costs. So we have seen some progress, after all, since 1819. But the picture isn't entirely rosy. Just as the Suffolk system met with resistance from some small country banks, so RTP has met with resistance from some smaller community banks who don't like the idea of having to pay a big bank TCH consortium for fast payment services. But the truth is those services are very cheap. RTP has a flat fee structure that actually favors smaller banks. There are no volume discounts, there's no volume commitments, and there are no monthly minimums. And I think the fee per transaction is, for the sender, 4.5 cents, uh, which is very competitive with other fast payment systems or equivalent to other fast payment uh, settlement systems in the world. The Fed rules, in fact, probably wouldn't, if strictly enforced, allow it to make as good a deal as RTP does because uh, by the rules of the Monetary Control Act of 1980, the Fed can't cross-subsidize its payment services, though it does so all the time, to be frank. The Fed, by the way, could make this system even less onerous to small participants especially, but to all, 
by allowing interest on RTP's joint account balance, which is something the Suffolk Bank never did to its members. They had to keep their balance of 2,000 or more dollars and never got a nickel for that. Instead, the Fed has thrown a wrench into the RTP works. Last October, it yielded to pressure from community banks by announcing it was considering establishing its own back-end real-time gross settlement, or RTGS, system to compete directly with RTP. And this mere possibility of the Fed's entry into that space has had a chilling effect on RTP's progress. It had about 50 or 60% of all uh, bank at, bank, banks by assets in its system uh, as of a, about a year ago. I'm not sure where it's at now, but many banks now are playing wait and see because they don't want to sign up with RTP and then find that a rival system has made it uh, desirable for them to switch. So the Fed's potential entry into the uh, fast payment and settlement space will probably delay achieving a fast retail payment system, a truly fast system for at least a year. And then, of course, if the Fed does enter, uh, which will probably take it that long or longer, it'll be four or five years for it to get its system up and running with no, as far as I can tell, no clear gain in payment speed or efficiency. But the Fed's entry could have the opposite effect especially by discouraging future entry and innovation in the back ends of the fast back end of the fast payments business. When is it appropriate to resist the agents of the state? For many the answer may be easy, never. But the United States itself was founded on one such act of resistance, and moral philosophy generally gives government agents special, if unearned, status. May an individual legitimately resist state power? In what cases is such resistance allowed? Jason Brennan explores these questions in his book, When All Else Fails, The Ethics of Resistance to State Injustice. He spoke at the Cato Institute in June. What inspired this book was the string of recent events that we've seen on television about the way that police are treating um, people in general, but black men in particular. And we don't have, by the way, really strong evidence that things are really worse. It might simply be that because now everyone carries with them this, which, you know, recording devices, when bad things happen, it's easier to get them like online and to see what's actually occurring. So we might simply be more aware of a prevalent problem rather than the problem actually being worse now than it was in the past. That's like, whether it's worse in the past is a good question. That's a separate book though. So here's Richard Hubbard III. He's driving in Euclid, Ohio. If you've ever been to the area around like the Eastern part of Ohio, you know that like cops there are constantly pulling people over because that's a good way to make money. They are kind of underfunded in those cities and they're, they very rigorously enforce all traffic laws in order to get money for themselves. I'm not saying that out of bitterness, but it is true that I think both of the speeding tickets I've ever gotten came from Ohio for these purposes. So there you go. But I was treated pretty well by cops when that happened to me. Richard Hubbard wasn't. You can watch the police officer's dash cam video. You can Google it, it's on YouTube right now. And you'll see that he stops, kind of like, you know, kind of meanders over line, but he stops at a, like, at a stop sign, puts on his blinker, and then takes a right. 
The cops pull him over. When the cop gets up to his car, he immediately opens the door and yanks him out and starts beating him. And Richard's putting his hands up. And of course, when the cop is beating him, he says things like stop resisting and so on. And then he gets him on the ground, prostrate on his stomach, and he continues to hit him and so on. And I wonder if you saw this happen, if you watched the entire thing go down, what would you be permitted to do? I think that you'd be permitted in this situation to use violence to stop the cop from hurting Richard Hubbard. Right? Now, I wouldn't recommend that you do that because if you do, you're probably going to get hurt. The police officer is better trained than you. There's a good chance they'll send a SWAT team to kill you. But the question here isn't whether this is strategic. My question is, would it be permissible to use violence to resist excessive police violence or other injustices committed by government agents, even when they're acting ex officio, in their capacity as democratic government agents? I think the answer is yes, it often is. So why? Uh, Albert Hirschman wrote a famous book called Exit, Voice, and Loyalty, and he said that when you are part of an organization, there's three basic ways you might respond to that organization and express your dissatisfaction with it. One is you might exit. You might try to leave because you think it's not a good organization. So perhaps you won't work for that company anymore. Perhaps you won't live in that country anymore. Perhaps you'll like won't you know you'll leave in some way. You might engage in voice. You might complain about the problem very publicly. You know, write letters to the editor, get on the streets and complain about it, get online and so on, and explain what you think is bad about what this organization is doing. Or you might simply remain loyalty, like have loyalty, remain loyal to that organization despite its flaws. And these are all good ways of responding perhaps to problems that organizations have, but I think there's a fourth option, and that fourth option is resistance. Sometimes you can take matters into your own hand and try to stop things. Now, the funny thing is, like, when you talk about this kind of stuff, violent resistance or other forms of resistance to government, most people accept this, just not when it comes to democratic, overall liberal governments. So, for example, Christopher Altman and uh, Andrew Altman and Christopher Heath Wellman in a paper say, surely it would have been permissible for somebody in the 1930s to assassinate Stalin. Given how awful he was, given all the evil things he was doing, surely it would have been permissible for someone to assassinate him. And you ask most people, they think that that's true. Of course, you could go back in time and assassinate Hitler. Of course, you can assassinate Mao. Of course, you can assassinate Pol Pot, these massive evildoers. But I wonder, if you're permitted to assassinate them, to stop them from unleashing the horrors that they were doing, what about, say, American examples? If we have an American president who's about to unleash the Trail of Tears and forcibly relocate five Indian nations at great personal expense, causing massive amounts of death, would you be allowed to assassinate that leader or the people underneath him in order to stop him from doing that? If we have uh, presidents who plan to put every, a bunch of Japanese people into an internment camp, would you be allowed to use violence to stop that from happening? If you have presidents who are about to start an unjust war, would you be permitted to use violence to stop them? Here, most people say no. They think that there's a difference here between one kind of government and the other, and they say rightfully so, well, you know, overall it's a liberal government, overall it's democratic, overall it's pretty just despite having some real flaws. So are they right? Is that enough to make, to justify the difference? So what I'm trying to do in this book, a lot of what happens is I try to construct cases where there's a civilian who does something wrong, and you will probably have the intuition that you are permitted to intervene there. It might not be strategic to, but you're permitted to intervene. You're permitted to use some sort of defensive action to stop this from occurring. And then construct parallel cases where the only real difference seems to be that it's a government agent acting in his or her capacity as a government agent. Right? So imagine... You know, you're sitting in a park and you see uh, a person show up, a gunman, and he starts firing at people, right? You don't know why he's doing it. You don't know what's going on in his head, but you simply see that he's firing at people. And like many Americans, you happen to be armed. 
you probably have the intuition that it'd be permissible for you to stop and shoot the gunman, to stop him from shooting other people. Most people think that. What if, on the other hand, it's a different case? And this is, by the way, these are all real cases. I'm not making these up. So what if instead you see a police officer pull over a minivan full of children and a mom, the mom's hands are on the steering wheel, she's not armed, and when the police officer gets out, he immediately starts shooting at the van. Real case in America recently. Would you be permitted to take out your gun and shoot him to stop him from killing that woman and her kids? I think you can. Do you? What's the difference? Does the fact that he's wearing a, a, a coat, he has a badge, he's working for the government, he receives a paycheck from the government, does that make, is enough to make the difference? I don't think the answer is yes. Imagine you're having a party on Memorial Day or the 4th of July, and one of the uh, party goers, let's call him Rodney, gets a little bit out of hand. He drinks too much, and he starts causing a ruckus. He knocks over the tiki torches and you know, causes a small fire. He's actually really putting people in danger, and rightfully so, a bunch of us intervened to stop Rodney from hurting other people. Like, But once we get him, once we stopped him, we put out the fire and we've got him under control so he's no longer causing a ruckus, we're so mad at him that we continue to just beat him and beat him and beat him. He is on the ground and we're pounding the back of his skull with sticks and rocks and kicking him in the chest because we're really angry. And you see this. Now you see this and you go, you know, Rodney had, it, it made sense that we intervened to stop Rodney in the first place, but he's lying prostrate. He is no longer a threat. Are we, would you be willing to intervene to stop us from beating the hell out of him? Would you think it would be okay to do so? I suspect you think it is. Now, what if I have another case, but this time involving government agents? Let's say there's a person named Rodney, and he's driving a truck, and he's drunk driving. He's actually a genuine danger to other people. And the police intervene to stop him from doing that, as they should, because he shouldn't be drunk driving. But when they finally subdue him, they're so angry at him that they beat the hell out of him for many minutes. And it all goes on camera. And you can, of course, watch this. I'm talking about the Rodney King beatings here. Like, if you saw the police doing this, you see that this person's now been subdued. He's defenseless. He's no longer a threat to anyone. And the police, in their anger, are continuing to hurt him very badly. Perhaps, for all you know, they're about to kill him. You don't know what's going to happen. Is it permissible for you to intervene to stop them in the way that you would intervene or think it permissible to intervene to stop me from doing the same thing? What if... Imagine that uh, Jason is sort of a health nut, and he comes to believe that uh, drinking caffeine, as many of you are doing, is bad for you. Right? It's like it like, gets your heart going, it gets a sort of dependency. He thinks it's bad for you. And yeah, there's some scientific studies verifying that. There's also a bunch of scientific studies going the other way saying it's not that bad. But he just genuinely believes it's bad for you. So here's what he does. If he finds out in your town that you're drinking caffeine or you have any kind of caffeine products, he says, I'm going to punish you. I'm going to lock you in my basement for 30 days and take your caffeine away. And then one day you're having your morning coffee. Like for whatever reason, like the local police just go along with this. You just let him do it. And one day you're having your morning coffee in secret with your shades drawn because you know Jason might come in and break in. And he breaks into your house and he's like, aha, I knew you were drinking coffee. Into my basement you go. I think in that sort of situation, you would feel like, you know, Jason's a nice guy, but I'd be permitted to violently defend myself to stop him from putting me in his basement for 30 days on the basis of this probably think that. If you agree with that, though, what about a similar kind of case? Imagine the American government has decided that marijuana is illegal. And if you look at the history of why they decided that, it was a lot of based on racism because black people smoke pot and we can't have that. Um, jazz musicians because of lobbying from cigarette groups and so on. But they decide to make marijuana illegal despite overwhelming evidence that it's, you know, not good for you, but it's not really that harmful and doesn't cause the problems that they say it does. 
Um, and now you're smoking pot in secret in your house and they break into your house with a SWAT team, which is one of the most common ways for people to arrest. Like when SWAT teams are used in the US, they're overwhelmingly used to arrest people for drug possession, not for actual violent crime. They've come into your house with a SWAT team and you don't know what's happening. They break open the door, a bunch of armed men jump in with weapons and you shoot back. Is that permissible? What's the difference? Imagine that uh, you happen to be stumbling upon, like you go and you, you leave here and you walk into one of those other rooms. And when you come and you realize Cato is actually a terrorist organization, right? There are people who think that anyway. So they're probably like, all right, Nancy McLean's like, I already think that. All right, uh, you think that you realize Cato's actually a terrorist organization. And then over there in one of those rooms, they're about to launch like a biological weapon on a bunch of innocent people. And you see them about to press the button and I can see many of you are packing heat, so you're armed and you pull out your pistol and you shoot some of the Cato staffers to stop them from unleashing this biological weapon. You'd probably think that that's permissible. Now imagine the same situation except you're a janitor and you happen to be in the situation room when the president is about to unleash weapons that will kill a bunch of innocent people in an unjust war or an unjust attack. And you have the position where you could actually attack the president to stop him. Would that be permissible? There's like dozens and dozens of cases like this and we can talk about the fine details, but the basic thought is construct a case where civilians are doing something that you would think that is permissible to intervene to stop them, using violence, subterfuge, deception, and other means. And now construct a similar case with the government. The only difference is they didn't seem to be doing the same thing, but the only difference is that they are the government. Does that make a difference to the morality of the case? Most people say yes, which is kind of puzzling. I mean, it's very common for people to think that, so we're kind of used to it, but it's puzzling. Because what this means is that most people believe that your right to self-defense and your right to defend other people can be constrained by legislative fiat. It means that we can eliminate your right to self-defense or your right to defend others simply by passing a law or issuing an edict or you know, going through a really convoluted process and then saying this is what the rules are going to be. That when we put a badge on somebody and give them a uniform, when they act badly, that this somehow constrains your rights. So maybe that position is in fact justified, but it does have to be justified. And the question is why I believe it. So I think what most people believe in is what I will call the special immunity thesis. The special immunity thesis says this, the conditions under which you can use the exercise your right of self-defense or your right to defend others are much more tightly constrained when you're dealing with a government agent than when you're dealing with a civilian. You have a right of self-defense and a right to defend others against civilians acting wrongly. But the conditions in which you can exercise the same right against government officials are highly constrained, right? They're shrunk. So maybe you still have some residual right, but they're shrunk down quite a bit. In contrast, what I wanna defend in this book, When All Else Fails, is what I call the moral parity thesis. The moral parity thesis is really boring. It just says, the conditions under which you have the right to defend yourself or defend others from civilian wrongdoers are also identical to the conditions under which you can defend yourself from governmental wrongdoers, even if the governmental wrongdoers work for an overall pretty good government, and even if they were properly elected or properly appointed through some sort of democratic process, and even if they're acting ex officio in their capacity as government agents. So in other words, you're, you just have one theory of self-defense and it applies to everybody regardless of who they are. You like Cato Audio? Of course you do. But when you get the Jones for substantial public policy discussions and you've already listened to Cato Audio, try out some of Cato's several podcasts, including the Cato Daily Podcast hosted by yours truly, do me this favor and subscribe to Power Problems, Free Thoughts, 
and of course the Cato Daily Podcast to get a daily dose of analysis and discussion about public policy issues of the day. They're available at no additional cost over and above your generous support for the Cato Institute. And these podcasts are available wherever you get your podcasts. That will do it for this edition of Cato Audio. I'm Caleb Brown. Talk to you again next month.